Hello and welcome to episode 24, 24 of this podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is Perry Middlemas and my co-host, as always, is David Grigg. Hello, David. Hi, Perry. How, how are you coping with the isolation, self-isolation at the moment? Sounds to me like you've got a house full of people self-isolating. Every now and again on this podcast, we use a term that, at the time, seems perfectly reasonable. Then later on, when we go back and listen to it again, we realise that, yeah, maybe it's not. So, just to clarify here, the Middlemas family is not self-isolating in the sense of having got the bug or even symptoms. We're all just staying at home and working from home. We are social distancing, physical distancing, if you like. That's it. We have a full house full of four people, all in different rooms. So I never really know what the internet connection is going to be because most of the time they're all on it, mm. all sucking down the bandwidth and sort of making it a little bit harder for me to do what I want to do. Indeed. Well, thank but, goodness for the internet. Well, yes, I think we'd be totally lost without it. We certainly would be with this podcast. Yeah, but the good thing about it is it does give us a chance to um, catch up on our reading, David. Indeed. Give us the opportunity to um, also have a look at uh, a few TV series that uh, we should really have got to, or I should really have got to, uh, so that we can basically talk about those in weeks coming coming up. Also gives us a chance to do a bit of planning. And we have actually done a little bit of planning for this one. Uh, this one's going to be our crime fiction podcast, uh, where all we are going to talk about is crime fiction after I correct a mistake that I made last week. Right. Now, this has got to do with the um, Nebula Awards. I was saying last week that um, the Nebula Awards are the Writers Awards that are the equivalent of the Readers Awards from the Hugo for the Hugo Awards. Well, yep. that part's correct. I was also correct in that I said that during each calendar year, members of the Science Fiction Writers of America make recommendations or nominations for books that they think should be on their ballot for the Nebula Award at the end of the year. That's also correct. Where I got it wrong was I said that after the nominations of the shortlist had been published, that it was a juried award. That is not correct. Right. I've just looked that up now and found out that basically it is a situation where the shortlists are released and then full members of the Science Fiction Writers of America are able to vote. Mm. And they are voting pretty much now in March and early into April. And the Nebula Awards are, um, are handed out at an awards Weekend, which I probably don't think will be held now. I think that mm -hmm. um, that's probably going to be a virtual event sometime in May. Mm. Uh, now, normally what they would have is a weekend somewhere, probably somewhere in a different place in America, uh, where they have a, um, a number of discussions. Uh, this, this weekend's really mainly only available for Science Fiction Writers of American members to attend. And they have a banquet, and at the banquet they hand out the Nebula Awards. This year, I think all that's probably going to be virtual. But I wanted to make sure that I corrected um, my mistake. This is something that's going to happen from time to time with this podcast, David, that we're going to say things that afterwards we realised, hang on, that wasn't quite right. Sometimes we might get the name of a book wrong or an author yeah. wrong. And if we pick it up, we'll try and clear it up. 
But it's better if we basically just try and fix these things as we go, mm. um, make sure that everybody's aware that uh, we've messed up, or in this case, I've messed up, and try to fix it. That's so hopefully that, but hopefully that basically gives um, people a better idea of what's happening with that. Sure. Well, as, as Alexander Pope said, to, to err is human, to forgive divine. So there you go. Well, okay. Well, you can forgive me, David, because you, you look more like the um, uh, the big guy upstairs than I do. Right. <laughs> my, my beard's just going um, full-on self-isolation. I'm up, moving towards the full Tasmanian, as we like to call it at the moment. Big and fluffy and all over the place. Well, I think mine's going to get a bit that way because uh, I'm not going to do any hairdresser ever, uh, anymore, of course, at the moment. So it's a No, well... I've never really had the hairdresser trim my beard, so uh, I do that myself, which is probably why it looks like I've been dragged through a bush backwards, (laughs) as my mother used to say when I was growing up. But anyway, let's move on to what we were going to talk about uh, this particular episode, David. And we've designated this our crime fiction episode. And you've got one that you'd like to discuss First well, I've, yeah, I've got a couple, but the um, the first one I want to talk about is something I, I have mentioned a couple of times, I think, before on the podcast, and sort of briefly gone over it, but I'd I really like to sort of dig a bit deeper into it, so that's why I'm, I'm coming back to it. And this is um, Gone by Midnight by Candice Fox. Now, I've met, as I said, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but really only in passing, so I thought it was worth a closer look. It's the third book in the Crimson Lake series by Candice Fox, which is, which is set in the small community of that name, not far from Cairns in northern Queensland. So it's semi-tropical. There are swamps and there are crocodiles in those swamps, man-eating crocodiles, and they play quite a part in all of these books. There are two main characters, uh, and I say I'll very briefly go through this because I've actually covered some of this before. The, the main character is a guy called Ted Conkerfee, who is an ex-cop who was falsely accused of the abduction, bashing and rape of a young girl in an outer suburb of Sydney. But he was charged and then released for lack of evidence because he didn't do it, so that's why there was no evidence. There were some witnesses who thought they placed him at the scene. Anyway, because of that, uh, he's uh, vilified and uh, he flee, flees to northern Queensland to this particular place. But by the third book, this third book, we know that uh, Conkerfee now has no chance of ever clearing his name because of things would happen in the second book. In Crimson Lake, Conkerfee has teamed up with Amanda Farrell, who is a young woman who has spent time in jail for murder, but on release has become a private investigator. And as this book says, there's something deeply wrong with Amanda Farrell. Uh, she's tough, quirky and defiant, constantly at loggerheads with the police and uh, likes to stir the pot a good deal. Anyway, this third book starts with a young boy going mysteriously missing from a hotel in Cairns, where his mother and three couples who are friends of, the, of hers are holidaying together. Each of them has one boy, uh, and so they've made an arrangement each evening to leave the four boys in one of their hotel rooms, watching TV and playing games, while the parents drink in the bar downstairs. This arrangement's worked well for several nights, but one night, when his mother returns, her son Richie is missing. The hotel's searched again and again, but there's no sign of him or his body, nor is there anything helpful on the closed-circuit TV tapes. Now, Ted Conkerfee finds out about this when police turn up to his house, abuse him, grab hold of him, and drag him in to see the police chief. He's known, of course, because of his previous history as a child rapist. That's what they think. And so, they'll, you know, it's the usual thing of let's round up the usual suspects. But it turns out that the police chief didn't want him arrested. In fact, wanted his help in the investigation because uh, Richie's mother has asked for him specifically. Uh, she, turns out, is a member of a Facebook group which 
publishes stuff which because they believe that Concafee was innocent, which indeed he was. So there are some really interesting twists and subplots in the book. There's a, a nascent love interest between Concafee and a female veterinarian, who, which comes crashing down when she finally learns uh, who he really is. Uh, did I mention that Concafee keeps a family of ducks he's rescued? He does. Anyway, then there's the policewoman who has an obsessive hatred of Amanda Farrell because of the death of the policewoman's best friend in the previous book. This eventually leads to violence, getting in the way of Amanda solving the mystery. And uh, there's also quite a little sub-subplot about Amanda Farrell's many cats, which uh, get taken away from her at some stage, and uh, she kind of gets revenge through through a group of uh, bikers who, uh, who solve the problem for her. And then there's the point of view which is interspersed in, interspersed in the early chapters uh, of someone who it appears from what uh, what we read that he, he works at the hotel and he's constantly full of guilt. And so we think, oh, well, this must be the killer. What's the story? But things go on. There's some really, very clever twists in the plot and uh, there's some really... Uh, this comes comes to a very, very good conclusion, I thought. And then, of course, the, there are the crocodiles, don't forget the crocodiles, which do have a plot part to play in this plot. So it's highly recommended. I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I, the, all the all those three books are, are tremendous. I don't know whether she's planning any more in the series. Maybe not, but uh, they're they're all very well worth uh, worth reading. I've read the first two, and uh, this third one is um, moving ever higher on my uh, to be read uh, list. Absolutely, she's a fantastic writer, and um, yeah, the, sure first, the first trilogy that she wrote, the Hades um, Eden uh, series, was quite excellent. Yeah, I haven't read those. Yeah, so well, I I'd, I'd suggest, yeah, I'd suggest you go back and have a look at them. Yeah, I especially want to, seeing yeah. she came on with an absolute rush when she first came onto the scene. Yeah. The first novel won uh, the Ned Kelly Award for best first novel. Mm. And the second book in that series, the next year, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best Novel. So two uh, two wins in the first two, uh, and she's basically still doing fantastically well. I think she basically pretty much appears on the short lists for the Ned Kellys every year. But as if we were to go back and have a look at uh, the Neds, maybe we should do that in terms yeah, of yeah. a couple of years back and have a look and see where they are mm. and look at the uh, nominees. Mm. I think you'll see that the quality is going through the roof mm. with those. A lot of Australian authors are doing very, very well, both here and overseas, and uh, that can only be a good thing. Now, it might well be that Australia is just flavour of the month at the moment. Uh, I mean, the Icelandic Scandinoir stuff is um, very much still strong all the way through Europe and uh, North America, and maybe rural noir, as we will discuss later on in this yeah, episode, yeah. Uh, maybe that is also starting to pick up. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope that's the way that it is. So it's a good book, David. You would uh, recommend that people read it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, the one that I'm going to Read them in order, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's always the best thing to do. You you can come into number three, but why bother? Mm. You might as well go back to number one. Yeah. And there's only three of them. It's not like you're basically having to go back and read 20 to catch Mm. up. You've only got to do three. And if you don't like the first one, well, don't carry on and do the others. But uh, the first one's a good introduction because that is very definitely about the main character's big problem of being accused of being a child rapist and murderer. And um, it's a fairly harrowing book, that one. Mm. Um, You would hate to be in his 
situation of having to be at exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time and as people driving past think they see something that is going on that actually wasn't mm-hmm. and then he gets accused of it and he's in deep trouble and he would have been terrible it would have been in a big bad way in prison cops that go to jail don't do very well so david the one that i want to talk about is a an american novel not an australian one but an american novel from 2018 called November Road by Lou Burney. Now, I had heard a lot of people talking very well about this book at the beginning, at the end of 2018, at the beginning of 2019. So I started telling people about how good it was, and I bought a copy for my wife, and she read it and thought it was fantastic. And all these other friends of mine started telling me how great a book it was, and I really should read it. And I thought... Well, I was the one that found it and started (laughs) telling everybody about it, but hadn't actually got to it until now. And I'm glad I did. It's a highly recommended book. Now, this won the Dashiell Hemet Award for uh, 2019, which is given by the International Association of Crime Writers. This is for a novel published in English in North America. in a particular calendar year, and so this is for the books that were uh, that were published in 2018. So he won that uh, particular award. It's got a heck of a lot of good notices from a lot of people. But let me give you the background of this particular novel. We go back to November 1963. Now, I'm not sure where of if you're aware of this, David, mm-hmm. two major things happened yeah, well, in November of 1963. One of them, as all science fiction fans should know, was that it was the first episode of the long-running British TV series Doctor Who. Yes. And I think either on the same day mm. or the day before was the assassination of President Kennedy. Yes, that's right. Now, this particular book is not about Doctor Who. It is about the assassination of President Kennedy. (laughs) Sorry. But it is around the edges Mm. of the uh, assassination. Now, Bernie has come up with this fictional character. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. He doesn't say whether he is or not. But anyway, this is a a piece of fiction, so we take it on its uh, face value. There is an Italian mafia head called um, Carlos who lives in... Houston, Texas. At some point prior to the novel's starting, he's been dragged before a Senate uh, select committee by Jack Kennedy and uh, his brother Bobby and humiliated in front of everybody. He hasn't forgotten this and has basically, in his own mind, promised revenge. So he's the one who sets up Lee Harvey Oswald in Mm -hmm. the book, Book Depository Building. He's also the one that sets up and hires the actual assassin, who's a uh, expert marksman, and puts him in another building and makes sure that everything flows from there on in. And later on, you also find out that he's, he knows Jack Ruby, so he sent Jack Ruby along to shoot Oswald uh, in the basement of the police station. Mm-hmm. And then Ruby, of course, basically just shuts up the whole way through and doesn't say anything. Anyway... That just gives you the background. Now, this particular expert marksman has to be able to get away from the side of the assassination and has to do it in a car that's untraceable. A bloke by the name of Frank 
Guidry, G-U-I-D-R-Y, Guidry, I think that's how you pronounce it, is an associate or works for Carlos. And he's the one that has been tasked with the idea of dropping off the getaway car in a car park a couple of blocks away from the Daily Plaza. And he does this a couple of days before. Now, Frank's a bit of a go-getter. He's a man about town, likes the ladies, like drinking a fair bit. So he's really not taking very much notice of what's going on in the world until one of the ladies that uh, he's been with one evening, they both get up very late. She turns on the TV and finds out that Kennedy's been shot. Mm-hmm. And Gridley thinks, oh, no, this is just a bit of a joke. You know, it's not going on until he realises that actually it probably is right. And then he starts thinking about what's happened and he starts working his way through it himself about where things are and he realises that the car that the guy probably drove away in was the car that he dropped off. Oh, okay, he thinks that's all right. Carlos knows how good I am to him, how how worthwhile I am having around. There won't be a problem. So he goes off and Carlos asks him to do something and he asks him to pick up the car from the airport, which he does, and then he asks him to get rid of it, which he does, and then he says, you might as well just go back home. Now, something starts to tick over in Frank's head and he starts to realise that this guy's cleaning up. And then he finds out that the guy that supplied the gun that did the shooting, who's been an associate of Carlos's for a long, long time, he's dead. So Frank starts realising that he's in a bit of trouble and he realises that if he goes back to his apartment, he's in trouble. So he almost does then gets a bit of a sniff that something's going wrong and turns off and turns tail and heads off. So he starts running, and that's what this November road is. It's Uh the story of Frank moving from Houston across the country, going towards... Actually, he's heading towards Las Vegas, and he's trying to stay away from whoever is going to come behind him and try and catch him. And he knows that Carlos will keep going until the ends of the earth to try and kill him because Mm -hmm. Carlos is basically cleaning up all the mess. Everybody that had anything to do with this assassination, regardless of who they are or where they fit in Carlos's hierarchy of his operations, he's trying to kill. Mm -hmm. So he's killed all these people and he sets a major hood that he's got working for him on the path of following along Frank. And as this is going along, the one thing that came into my mind, and this is certainly not a um, a derogatory statement about this book at all, was that it reminded me a touch of No Country for Old Men. Have you seen either the film or read the book? No, I'm afraid I haven't. Okay, well, that's basically got a major villain. It's a book that you really should read that has got a major uh, hitman who's basically going along trying to track down somebody who has taken some money that he has found from a failed drug deal. And he's trying to follow this through, but he's following it because inside the bag is a um, a radio transmitter, which the guy who's stolen it doesn't realise is there. So so this, this guy in No Country for Old Men is following him along. In a similar fashion for this, Baron, the guy that is uh, working for Carlos and trying to find Frank and kill him, is trying to follow him along to work out where he gets to. Now, Frank actually does get picked up by a couple of cops who are in Carlos's pocket, but he's able to convince them that if he is picked up 
by anybody from Carlos's organisation. And they know that the, the sheriff and the deputy know that Frank's been picked up. The sheriff and the deputy aren't going to last very long either mm. because Carlos is going to just basically clean them all up. He doesn't want anybody to know anything about what's going on. Now, as a secondary line in this particular book is the story of a woman called Charlotte Roy who is who has decided to leave her husband and take her two kids and head off to California. Now, they, Frank and this woman cross paths at one stage. He sees her on the side of the road, but he keeps on going. And then he catches up. Then they end up in the same motel on, on the highway. And Frank realises that he is probably better off trying to go across country with a family rather than being on his own because the guy following him is looking for one guy on his own of this particular type, driving this particular type of car. And so he thinks that if he gets in with this uh, woman and the two kids, that if he takes them with him, that he'll have a better sense of protection. That ha- They meet up probably about a third of the way through the book. And a lot of the book from then on in is the evolving relationship between Frank and Charlotte and the two kids. And you can see Frank slowly starting to change. He starts to see this life that he could have had, but never had the opportunity to have. But now he might have if he stays with this woman and they can get through. And so he goes all the way through to um, Las Vegas first, and then he gets an offer from a uh, rival of uh, Carlos's to go to Vietnam, because we're talking 1963, Mm. lots of opportunity in Vietnam, lots of drugs, lots of everything over there, lots of money to be made. Frank can basically be sent off to Vietnam to run the Southeast Asian operations for this new guy, Ed. And maybe the girls, the Charlotte and the girls will go with him. But it's an excellent book, really well done, high tension. I can understand why people that have come to me that I've recommended it to, I said, I've heard this book's pretty good. And one bloke, one friend of mine came to me after he said, he said I thought it was fantastic. I went out and bought everything else the guy's ever written. <laughs> Fair enough. And I can't think of a better recommendation than that, that straight away you'd go off and try and buy all of the guy's backlist. There's about four or five others, and I will certainly be looking into this guy's backlist. I mm. think it's um, uh, it's really quite, quite good. What's the uh, author's name? I think I missed it. Lou Burney, B-E-R-N-E-Y. Mm. And the book is November Road. Mm. Recommended. Right. Terrific. That sounds really good. The... Next book, I've, which I've only just finished reading, I was just scrambling to read it in time for this podcast, but uh, it was good. Um, and that's uh, The Broken Shore by Peter Temple. Now, this is the first Peter Temple book I've ever read, I have to oh, admit. Oh, <laughs> You really have a ways to go. And you really know, gotta, you've got to start catching up, David. I know. I know that uh, he's written a series of books uh, featuring a character called Jack Irish, and that there's a TV series based on those books featuring Guy Pearce. Yep. But I've never either read the books or seen the series. So. Oh, they're, they're, <laughs> they're both excellent. They're, both yeah. the, um, uh, they're all set in inner-city Melbourne, and he's got that 
eye of the outsider coming, this is Temple, because yeah. he was originally from South Africa. So he's come to Melbourne and he's just got completely and utterly into the culture and it's just fantastic. Mm. There's just some of that okay. inner city stuff is just wonderful. But anyway. Well, I, I, look, I look forward to to, uh, to reading those, but yeah, this is the first of, of his books I've read. So well, let's, let's go on with that. The, um, so The Broken Shore isn't a Jack Irish book. Instead, it features a character called Joe Cashin, who's a detective sergeant in the Victoria Police. But currently he's on secondment to the small coastal town of Port Monroe, which we discover is his hometown. It's not entirely clear to me, uh, unless I missed it, why he's been seconded out there, but it may be partly due to some incident in his past, which has left him badly damaged physically and, and to some extent mentally. And we very, very, very slowly through just casual things which which he lets drop, uh, things we we find out from from his thinking, that we find out what this incident was in the past. But we're constantly reminded of his physical suffering in terms of the pain he he suffers. He has to be on painkillers and the the stiffness from his injuries and so on. So it's clear that something very violent happened to him in the past. Anyway, the, the, in this, this, the actual story is that um, in Pont Monroe, a wealthy local landowner, Charles Burgoyne, uh, has, is found severely bashed in his mansion. Only The only thing that seems to be missing is an expensive watch, but uh, Burgoyne's unconscious and seems unlikely to survive, and indeed, later in the book, he does actually die. Now, the nearby larger town, Cromarty, has a larger police force, and their detective, Rick Hopgood, is in charge of the investigation uh, of this particular uh, particular burglary and uh, and bashing. It's clear clear though that Hopgood has an agenda, and uh, the blame for the burglary is soon thrown on some young Aboriginal teenagers who uh, try to pawn an expensive watch in Sydney. The pawnbroker presumably has, has let the police know about this, so the the police are tracking the the this car that the boys are in. And on their return drive from Sydney, the police try to intercept the car. Uh, but it's at night, it's uh, raining heavily, and it all goes wrong. Um, the, the car that the boys are in crashes. Two of the boys are killed, one in the crash itself, and one is shot dead by the police because he pulls out a, a, a weapon uh, as, uh, as they come towards the car. A third boy is arrested and charged, but not much later, he, he commits suicide. And so, um, case closed. Hopgood would like everyone to think. But uh, Joe Cashin has other ideas and he pursues an investigation which leads into some very dark corners indeed. I'd like to describe this, you've called it rural noir, but it's, it's, um, so, some of it is set in Melbourne, uh, in the city of Melbourne, and so let's just call it Australian noir. But it certainly has that kind of Raymond Chandler-ish sort of feel to the characters and the writing style. It's sort of this gritty, down-to-earth, often foreboding sort of feeling to it. You've got a damaged protagonist with a grim backstory. I don't often in the podcast quote passages of text, but I just thought I'd quote this short passage here, which is toward, comes in towards the end. So this is a quote from the book. A thin but steady rain fell on the men as they walked down the bowling gravel path and along the pavement to the vehicle. The gutters were running, carrying leaves and twigs and acorns. In some dark tunnel they would meet the sordid human litter of the city and go together to the cold slate bay. Now, if that's not noir, what is? <laughs> <laughs> Classic so, Melbourne too. 
Absolutely. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to reading the sequel to this book, which is titled Truth, which won the Miles Franklin Award, which is Australia's leading literary award, which is quite a feat for a crime novel, I would have thought. Absolutely. Yeah, indeed. So do you, you remember this book? Uh, I, have re- I have read this one. I still haven't read Truth either. So that's a bit of a another gap in my uh, reading. But I, I think I'm going to have to go back and um, reread this. Mm. Uh, one of the minor characters in this particular book appears in Truth later on. Uh, so there is a connection between these two, mm-hmm. although purely on the basis that he's just using one of the characters, that's all. But uh, Temple was a good writer. He's a great loss, uh, died a couple of years back. Uh, his Jack Irish stuff, as I was saying earlier, is is good stuff and good fun. Uh, it's a excellent inner-city crime series, certainly worth reading. And this one... This one just showed uh, his literary chops, I reckon. He just really um, jumped ahead in this one. There's a lot of good writing in it, some of which you've um, you've uh, uh, quoted there. But basically, some good stuff going on in this. And obviously, a lot of good stuff going on in Truth, yep. because it was the first Australian crime novel ever to win the Miles Franklin Award, which is yep. normally a major literary award. So that's... It was a good fillip for the Australian crime field and also yep. for Temple as well. Shocked a lot of people, I can tell you, when that one came, when that one happened. Mm, yeah, indeed. So anyway, David, earlier on in this podcast, we were talking about rural noir and you said that the Peter Temple was probably more just straight Australian noir and rather than rural stuff. And we're talking about rural noir as that crime crime novel which is sort of dark and foreboding but basically set in a rural setting so the jane harper stuff you know the um, yes, uh, yes. the dry and the lost man absolutely perfect in some ways the candace fox um stuff set in a small well, country that's, town that's tropical noir tropical noir semi-tropical noir it's yeah, not yeah. It's, it's not exactly it's not exactly the rural setting that a lot of people from overseas would see as no. being Australian because they'd be thinking you know dry desert gum trees kangaroos kangaroos all that sort of stuff hmm. but what was released last year and um, which was mentioned by Lucy Sussex in her best of the year last episode was a book called Peace by Gary Disher now Lucy said that um, she was really taken with it. I'm a big fan of Gary Dish's work. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that uh, Lucy and I would get together and discuss this book in a way, similar way to the way that we did with the Zora Cross biography a couple of episodes ago. So here's Lucy and I talking about Peace by Gary Disher. So we're here today to talk about this new book by Gary Disher, released at the end of last year. The book is called Peace. It's the second in a series which I don't think he's named as yet, but it basically has the same major character, Paul Hirschhausen. Hopefully I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. And it is the second book in the series following Bitterwash Road for 2013. Yep, which is was, was called Hell to Pay when released in the US. Why did Not they... a... Not a great title, I think. That's a shocking title. Why do they change the name of it? I thought Bitterwash Road's an excellent title. 
Yeah. Maybe he can call this the Burroughs series or um, or the Clare Valley series. Well, he can't really call it the Burroughs series because basically he doesn't really mention Burroughs in there. Now, I should point out no. that my special interest in this particular set of books is that, as you've pointed out, um, uh, with the with the bringing up the town of Borough, that's where Gary Disher was born and was brought up, or just outside there. Now that's nineteen forty nine. Nineteen forty nine. Now that's in the mid north of South Australia. It's uh, the mid north of South Australia basically starts at around about the Clare Valley and works its way up all the way across to the Victorian border and just goes all the way right up. Uh, Borough is about 60 kilometres away from where I grew up. So I know this area pretty well, although I didn't, in my early years, didn't travel to Borough very often. Uh, But it's very similar landscape. So I'm really quite taken with these particular books not only from the fact that Disher is an excellent crime writer, as we will discuss, but he really handles landscape incredibly well. And it is it becomes a very major part of the whole of the book, all the way right through. Yep. Um, but let's get to let's get to this particular book. Uh, Paul Hirschhausen is um, a copper. Uh, he's basically a, a policeman in a single single police station in a town called Tiverton, which is basically Disher's sort of borough-like or a town-like borough yep. that he's uh, put in as a, um, um, as a substitute. Hirschhausen has a bit of a history in that uh, he had worked his way up um, in an Adelaide suburban police station up into the Criminal Investigation Bureau, only to find out that a few of the uh, head coppers in that particular bureau and that station were corrupt, and he blew the whistle on them. He got tainted by it uh, as much as uh, they did. They all got, uh, some of them got put in jail and some of them got dismissed. He got um, demoted back to senior constable, I believe, and then pushed off off into the country. So he's now working at this uh, police station. And the two novels, Bitterwash, Road and Peace, deal with his doings in that particular town. So what did you think of Peace, Lucy? I actually preferred Bitterwash Road, which is a maybe not the best thing to say, but Bitterwash Road really was interesting in that I've been to the Clare Valley too for wineries. It's a, it's a, a landscape that kind of grabs you, and I note that, Disha says he feels it, he feels it's his home, and when he's describing the landscape, it's um, never any forced metaphors. There's no Raymond Chandler here, but you can it's word pictures, and you can immediately see what it's like. So it's a very it's a the environment, the setting is a personality, as it should be in the in the best crime books and which Fergus Hume recognised way back in 1886 with the handsome cap and Melbourne as a character. So the landscape is a character and it dictates what happens. And this one is good and it's the same way. I was recently reading Marjorie Allingham and noticed that she's very good at small town gossip. And this 
and this whole scenario that he sets up, and there is a kind of spoiler on the, in the cover, but I won't reveal it, is it's all about small-town gossip and the interactions of people, petty crime. It's mostly petty crimes that he has to deal with. But then there's an invasion from outside and it's a major crime event and he deals with that. But it's the plotting's intricate, but it all ties together superbly. And even when there's a sense of intense lived-in this place – and so that comes across very clearly. And so, and yeah, I thought, uh, I thought it was absolutely ingenious, as the best crime novels are, in that you, you do get the payoff at the end and then you go, oh, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that uh, if you sit back and have a think about how he sets it all up, the whole point of him setting up the whole of the town leads through to the revelations. Well, the incidents that he is going to investigate actually don't really start in a big way because you're waiting for something to happen and they don't really start for a big way until he's about halfway through the book. But it's only when you get through to about three quarters of the way through the book that you think, oh, hang on a minute. Everything that was happening back at the beginning now all starts coming together and you start seeing it all fitting into a very nice puzzle. And it's small town stuff. Everything is connected, as you say. All everybody knows everybody else. They all see what's going on around the place. Uh, It's very interesting the way that uh, he's able to handle that. And he knows small country towns, obviously. Um, uh, Small country Australian towns, anyway. He knows them. And it comes across very, very well. Yeah, and he knits it all together beautifully so that all these unconnected events link up. And, yeah, so you get a complete picture. And I can see why they're promoting this as rural noir, which is a current fad um, of marketing. But really, rural noir has been around since Arthur Upfield was doing you know, trips around Australia and writing about the widows of, of Broome and the Sands of Windy. You know, you observe a place very closely and then you work out what makes it tick and then you make fiction from that. So, yeah, Disha is never is never less than absolutely competent and, um, and that's not meant in an insulting sense, but he always sort of produces the goods. He... He's a supremely able crime writer, but as I'm thinking, the last few books have really pushed him into another area. You could always rely on him, and but this time it's like he's gone into fourth gear from about sort of the 2010s onwards, and you can see this, and you can see this progression happening. He's basically he's really in the in the crime area he's really got three major series that he is running or has at least written books in over the last 3 or 4 years now the the early early ones was his Wyatt series which is a um oh uh it's raffles no it's more um it's more a tough guy uh tough guy thief Parker Spencer, possibly, I'm not sure. But anyway, he's um, uh, it's a really quite an interesting 
set of books, and the next time one of those comes up, we should discuss those as well. There's been nine books in that particular series starting in 1991, with the most recent in 2018. And then there's... Is that the, Heat? Uh, that heat, heat, probably Heat, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, then there's the Chalice and Destry, or the Mornington Peninsula uh, books, because Disha now lives down on the Mornington Peninsula. The Chalice and Destry... Um, Novels are set in a Mornington Peninsula police station where Chalice is the head of uh, detectives. Uh, there's been seven novels in that particular series from 1991 to 2016. Uh, yep. I think he's, I would probably think he's probably slowing down on that one a little bit more now. And then with this uh, Paul Hirschhausen, there are two novels, Bitterwash Road in 2013 and this latest one in 2019. Now, I suppose the question you could ask is, why did it take so long to write a second book in this particular series? And really, the publishers way... Probably, pu- publishers probably asked him nicely or, or uh, throttled, him, throttled him nicely. Yes, possibly. Uh, he's, so he's got these three particular different series running. Uh, you could say that there were similarities between the Chalice and Destry and the uh, Paul Hirschhausen books. Uh, in the sense that he's looking at small-ish police stations, though they're in different sizes. And I do think that he probably feels as though this book piece and Bitter Wash Road are the ones that he really wants to write uh, because these are the ones that are set in in, um, in the towns where he grew up. Uh, you can just feel that whole sense of community and uh, life coming through in these particular books. Not to say that the others aren't, uh, don't don't have that. But it's interesting also that I think that Gary Disher and Kerry Greenwood are now probably the two major long-serving crime writers with the loss of Peter Corris and Peter Temple over the last couple of years. Disher's, and Shane Maloney's got Shane Maloney's got writer's block. Yes, and so he hasn't written anything for ooh, a decade at least, I would think, if not longer. And so Dish is one of the one of our major practitioners in this particular field. And as you said or alluded to, I just I don't think he's getting any worse. In fact I think he's actually getting better because he's pairing back what he needs to do. And he's just writing beautifully at the moment. This book just flows. It just you start you just you just want to stay stay there. And you want to basically see all the characters and where they come out, and it's really quite excellent. There's. I'd like to mention another non-series novel, and that's 2017, Under the Cold Bright Light, which was sort of Melbourne, was sort of suburban Melbourne, country Melbourne, sort of Melbourne. It's un, and that I thought was excellent too. And it begins quite absurdly with a um, a snake in the garden, and they call the snake catcher, and then the snakes disappeared under some concrete. And so they have to break up the concrete to get a snake and then there's something else they weren't expecting. And that's another one. He's a kind of a slow burner. And I think maybe career-wise and novel-wise novel, um, in that they there's certainly drama, but there's, it, he's, he lights a fuse and then just lets it snake around and then boom – it's really interesting to see someone writing so well this late in their career. I would agree with that. And I think that uh, he's one of our prime writers. 
not in any genre, but I just think he's one of our prime writers um, in Australia. Uh, but if you have any sense that you like Australian crime fiction, I really think you should be reading this particular book. I think it is going to end up on... Well, I would hope that it ends up, I say, on the Ned Kelly uh, shortlist. But the difficulty you've got with... Um, Somebody like Dishery has been around for a long period of time. He, he got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Ned Kellys a couple of years back. It may well be that general taste amongst crime read, uh, readers has moved on from him. Uh, I haven't moved on from Disher. I think he is uh, still producing excellent work, as this one shows, uh, and hopefully he'll get recognition for it. Well, he's actually had a fair amount already. Um, I think in the some point during the 1990s, I went to Seattle and I was in a crime bookshop and I saw Disher there. And I said, oh, yes, I know Gary Disher. And the proprietor immediately said, tell him we love his novels. <laughs> um, and you can see that he's had the Ned Kellys, but he's also got um, – he's also – done quite he's won awards as a children's writer and he's won um german crime awards in in translation so he's got a so he's so you know he could win a ned kelly but then again he could get pushed into one of the overseas awards say say um the edgars mm. Um, or the British awards, um, if he's released there, there's no reason why this shouldn't why this why this shouldn't appear no. uh, overseas. No, certainly, um, um, certainly, um, McKinty and Jane Harper over the last couple of years has shown that. Oh, and Michael Robotham as well, of course. Um, not forgetting him, the they've shown all those three have shown that just because you're an Australian crime writer now, does not mean that you're going to be ignored by. The, the award givers overseas. Now, I'm not saying also that an award per se is a stamp of quality, but it just basically helps the author um, themselves get more recognition uh, amongst the, uh, the reading community. Well, I would make, actually make a point that McKinty's not really necessarily Australian, doesn't use Australian settings, and Robotham doesn't use Australian settings. Harper does. And it's actually been a long time since for, you know, Temple got through, you know, he got he got an international award using Australian settings. But really the thing that can push a writer very well is to sell film rights. And I personally think the South Australian Film Corporation should um, – if they if they still exist, should get up and um, do Bitter Wash Road and Peace, because I think they'd make really good movies, stroke telemovies, and very and not not that hard to do really. No, I think you're well, right. Don't, uh, the towns are there. The basically, hopefully, the infrastructure's there. We've got to get through this um, current pandemic to be able to even think about that. But uh, a plague upon the plague. <laughs> but hopefully, um, hopefully, he uh, he gets something out of this. So uh, the children's and YA novels that you mentioned, the couple that uh, he has done quite well with are The Bamboo Flute and The Divine Wind. Now, these, mm. are t these are two that I haven't read, which I should have read, but Dish has written, I don't know, something like 40 or 50 books overall in lots of different genres. 
the Sunken Road uh, back in the 90s was, um, I think, long listed for a Booker Prize and he um, or was submitted for it. I don't think it probably uh, ended up on the long list. They probably didn't do one at that point. But uh, that one was uh, one of his major literary works. So that was about 25 odd years ago. But I don't think they probably make as much money as his um, crime novels so that's probably why he's staying there these young these young adult stuff did quite well because i think they both ended up on school reading lists oh yeah um and there's nothing like getting onto a year 12 reading list to subsidize your writing habit but i noticed i think he said some years back that it was initially that his literary work was um supporting his his crime work and now I would say that the crime work, it, now it's the, definitely the other way round. He's, he's, he's still quite well regarded as a, as a literary writer, but I think that, as Temple showed, you can win the uh, Miles Franklin for a crime novel. And, in fact, people should have been doing that well before, that, before then because Australian crime's been consistently performing above its game. You know... I wouldn't mind seeing Peace on the Miles Franklin, quite frankly. I think it would fit quite nicely. South Australia Festival Award, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's like he sort of pared back his three careers, so he's now got one left. But now he can focus on it completely. He's just operating at a whole different level. It's not to say that his, his previous level was not bad. It was very good, but this, these, these are extremely good. Okay, well, I think we're both in agreement that we can recommend this book and, basically, I can recommend all the Wyatt and Chalice and Destry novels because I've read all of those. Uh, And I would suggest that uh, if people are looking for another version of the Australian rural noir, that uh, Disher is one that people should keep an eye on. Oh, yeah, and I'd also recommend Under the Cold Bright Lights from 2017, Think, I think that's in the house somewhere. I've just got to get to it. Yeah, well, we all have pile of, piles of books all over the house. <laughs> we do. Okay, Lucy, thanks very much for that. Okay, okay, thank you for having me. Oh, that's all right. Okay, well, thanks to Lucy for that. That was um, an excellent discussion and a really good book and one that I enjoyed. And I had been meaning to read it, but I'm really glad that she prodded me along to finally get to it because it had been sitting on the coffee table in the lounge and staring at me accusingly saying that I should have read it. So um, I've got a few things that I know that I'm looking forward to reading coming up. But what about you, David? What's uh, what's next on your literary horizon? Well, the um, a package arrived about a week ago from Book Depository in the UK. And uh, given the current circumstances, uh, with things uh, with the virus, I thought, well, I'll uh, I'll just uh, put that aside, wipe it over, and uh, wash my hands afterwards, and put it aside for a week, and uh, let it sit in virus jail, uh, as it were. Uh, and so I've been doing that. So a bit, but I've been itching to open the, the package. And indeed, last night I I opened the package up, and uh, inside is my copy of Hilary Mantel's book, The Mirror and the Light which is the third and final book in her trilogy about Thomas Cromwell. You, you, were, like a, you were like a kid at Christmas, weren't you, Dave? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's got to be the final book because Thomas Cromwell, spoilers here, Thomas Cromwell gets the chop from Henry VIII. Oh, no, you've wrecked it. 
I'm sorry. Yeah, you've wrecked it for me. I know, I'm not no, going to bother reading it now. No, no. So, that, that's, that, so I'm sure this is the lead up to that. But uh, this is the trilogy which started with Wolf Hall, which they made a pretty ordinary TV series of, I thought. I really didn't think the character of uh, Thomas Cromwell was well cast in that. But Thomas Cromwell, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the history, was um, was a self-made man of the times in the Tudor times. And he starts off as an assistant to Cardinal Wolsey, but then gets uh, sort of uh, take, when Wolsey falls from grace, uh, he gets into uh, the the court of uh, Henry VIII and becomes a very trusted advisor to Henry VIII. Uh, but it's it, they're, they're really interesting books written from a really interesting point of view, uh, written in the present tense, which is very interesting. Anyway, the th- the the, uh, the third and, and final book, the very start of the book is the, the immediate aftermath of the uh, execution by beheading of Anne Boleyn. And there's some fairly gruesome little bits in there, which I won't, uh, I won't trouble you with, but uh, brilliantly written. So I'm really looking forward. It's a great slab of a book, so that'll keep me going for quite some time. So, so that's my, 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 hopefully my next big read. How about you, Perry? Well, there's a couple of um, novellas on the on the Nebula Award ballot that I'd like to get to. That's in the science fiction field. And also one or two novels, which I need to have a look at there. Um, also want to read that Gone by Midnight by Candace Fox. Mm-hmm. I need to, to read that. But I'm also having a look at some old crime fiction. Uh, you remember last year I was looking at things like um, Road Mail and The Maltese Falcon. I need to uh, go back and read the next one in the Sherlock Holmes series. Mm-hmm. So that's one coming up. Uh, and I'm also reading, I've actually just started it, a book called Either uh, A Coffin for Demetrius or A Mask for Demetrius by Eric Ambler. Nice. This is a crime novel that uh, appears on both the that major list of 1,001 books you must read before you die, and also the Guardian best 1,000 novels ever written. So it's on both of those lists. And it's just started it, um, set in about the 1930s. I've also discovered that uh, a film was made made of it in the 1940s. Uh, with Sidney Greenstreet as one of the major actors mm. in the in uh, in the film, so I would like to go and read the book, and then I'll go and watch the film, and maybe I'll report back on how the film adaptation went in terms of the book and to compare the two. Mm. Uh, the just there's some it's it's one of those it's one of those classics of crime literature. That again, I'm really only going to have one shot at. I'll read it and then that'll be it. I'll never come back to it again because I just won't have time in my lifetime to be able to get to it. Uh, and it's one that I've known about and I've known about Ambler. So looking forward to it. And it started off, started off pretty well. Interestingly enough, somebody else that I have spoken about on this podcast, namely Jean Le Carre, has mentioned Eric Ambler as a major influence ah. on his style and his genre. Mm. So that's an interesting connection uh, between an old classic and a current classic, mm. if you like, yeah, because indeed, indeed. some of the stuff that uh, Lacare has written is an absolute classic. They're absolute classic novels. You know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, mm. one of the best books written in the second half of the 20th century in England, I would think, without anybody without anybody being able to deny it. And so it's just interesting to see where some of these 
older versions and these antecedents come from and what impact they've had. So that's what yeah. I'm looking at at this stage. Indeed. Oh, well, we've got plenty to, to read and uh, we've got plenty of time, I imagine, at the moment. So Absolutely. We and we've got a number of plans for things coming up, as we have. Seems yeah. to be getting more and more plans all the time, David. Oh, no, plans are good. Yeah, plans are good. Just got to make sure that they all come to fruition and um, uh, and all come together. But uh, we have we have a few interesting things coming up, which is Indeed. good. All right, David, I think that's it for this episode. Yeah, uh, I'll see you again in a couple of weeks, Indeed. and uh, we'll talk then. Indeed. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Bye.